This is Jack Donovan, author of The Way of Men, and you are listening to Start the World. All right, I'm here today with Matthias Nordvik. He is an Old Norse scholar and author. He's based out of the University of Colorado Boulder, and you can follow his work on YouTube. He also has a podcast, and you can find out more about him at nordicmythologychannel.com. Uh, so, Dr. Nordvik, thanks for joining me. Hi. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you know, I reached out to him recently, and we, I think we're going to talk about, uh, obviously, he's an expert on, uh, you know, Norse uh, paganism and, and uh, the Germanic uh, mythology and so forth. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, heroes and masculinity and uh, leadership and kingship. And then I'd talk, I think, a little bit more broadly as well as about the, the context of uh, what is called heathenry and, and paganism in uh, the contemporary world. So, yeah. all right. So, so the, you said you had some ideas uh, from a Havamal, and you wanted to yeah. talk about that. Cool. Yeah, actually, and also I, I just wanted to mention too that uh, aside from you know having a degree and all of this stuff, I, I also was raised as a, a heathen, um, and uh, by Scandinavian parents. So, so in one sense or another, <laughs> that that's pretty rare. That doesn't happen a lot. No, it's, um, yeah, I mean, uh, in Scandinavia, we're, we're starting to see second and third generation heathens nowadays. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I guess I, I count more or less as a, as a second generation, um, in that sense. I mean, my, my, my mom, especially, was sort of like uh, figuring this stuff out when, when I was uh, very young. So, so in that sense, yeah. That's a, interesting. Interesting. So what is that experience like? I mean, as childhood, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a, I, I didn't know that. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, to, I mean uh, so you're, what kind of traditions and so forth were you brought up with in, in that way? So a lot of it, because, you know, in um, the history of heathenry here in, Scan in, in the U.S. Is, is from the 70s. I mean, there are, you know, indications earlier, but, right. but from the 70s is when we have these, you know, emerging uh, national organizations. And they are a little more in the forefront of figuring things out compared to Scandinavia. In okay. Scandinavia, we really only get like these formalized national organizations in, in the 90s. Um, there are indications in the 80s, but in the 90s, that's when they, they really come. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that has actually like been a, a part of exploring it in and of itself, like figuring out what is the tradition, how is the tradition. And um, just like over here, uh, Wicca has played a, a, a considerable role in the beginning. Right. And then you have sort of a development from there where people are like little groups are materializing and people are figuring out their own traditions in different ways. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been, you know, uh, rituals of various kinds with uh, various groups in, in our, um, in uh, the, the region we, we live in or lived in. Um, and um, sort of uh, trying to find uh, groups and peers uh, in different ways that that would be interested in in taking it in the directions that uh, you would be interested in. So for me, um, one of the things was to like explore the literature, the saga literature, the mythology, and so on, and and um, and establish groups that would work with that more than um, 
uh, what you could call the fluff, if you know what I mean. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> wait, wait, you don't have a, you're telling me you don't have a Viking Snuggie? Uh, <laughs> Viking Snuggie. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> An Eggles Hammer face mask? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of that out there. Obviously, that's that's the fluff. But I mean, and that does seem to be how uh, you really get a grasp on things that are ancient is to to study them. I mean, yeah. that's that's the only thing that you can really do because you don't have uh, this uh, kind of catechism that that's being passed down to you in a certain way. That you, this is what we do, and this is what we believe, and this is what you know. You uh, to really get a sense of things, you have to dig into the stories. Like I, I've been doing that. I really wanted to get a, a handle on some of the Greek stuff recently. So I'm like going through and reading all the, the old material. And uh, you really, you do, you start to get a sense of what they're, what they're about. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the only re- way you can really do it. People kind of want a, a, a simple how to um, yeah. for a lot of stuff. I get, I get that question all the time. It's like, where should I get started? Uh, and being a heathen, you know, like, yeah. and, I, and uh, I'm like, just read the books, you know, read the books and start there and then, you know, expand out. Exactly. You know, that's, yeah, that's, that's my, uh, my approach to it too. When people ask me and I say, you know, um, um, read, read the stories, uh, start there mm-hmm. and then start exploring. And, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of people um, who are looking for a, sort of like a, a, a neatly route package, right. Right. In, um, in, in that literature, but you would have to, when you're reading the saga literature, you will have to also branch out into other, uh, traditions to 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 really fully understand some of some of these things. I mean, consider that you know if you wanted to, to do a ritual, right, a, a blot ritual, mm-hmm. then then you really only have one one way to do it, and that is to, to kill a bunch of animals and then smear the blood all over everything, right? Right. And that's maybe not the the best approach for everybody <laughs> at any point, right? I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, I've done it, and it's it's yeah. hard to get a. I mean, yeah, like it's, it's a hassle to get cheap. I mean, it's it's <laughs> have a place to do it. Um, I mean, the last time I did it, actually, uh, because in the in the uh, you know uh, in the old Norse material and so forth, there aren't a lot of instructions on no. exactly how you do all that. Uh, and so, but the, actually the Greeks are very explicit. Yes. Like you hit it in the hammer within the front and in the back and you put some barley over it and, and then, then, yeah, then you bleed it out. And then, uh, this is the part that the gods get, and this is the part that we eat. And, yeah. uh, you know, so it's very cut and dry, but there, it, when the, uh, the Norse tradition, to my knowledge, I mean, there's just, there's not a lot of explicit instruction. No, no, that's true. And that's that's because I mean the the, the material is written by Christians. Um, we didn't have literature before the Christians came. All we had was rune stones. Right. That was very very narrowed down in terms of literature. Yeah. Um, and and aside from that, I mean um, these 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 Christians were more interested in in uh, in portraying it as uh, some kind of spice on a literature or. Um, you know, uh, using it for drama and even horror effects sometimes. So uh, that's uh, that's that's typically what happens in the saga literature, and that's how these stories come about in the saga literature is is as as some kind of like uh, sp- spicing it up a little bit, like you know, eighteenth, uh, nineteenth century um, uh, gothic literature. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I th- I've had that perception as well too, because uh, 
even the figure of Odin, uh, mm -hmm. I think very much. I'm like, how much is that? How much is he kind of Satanized in, in you know, by Christians at that point? You know, and you would know better than than I, you know, but uh, it, it seems that there's maybe I wonder if he was really that dark of a figure. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, obviously he's a psychopomp and that's kind of a weird guy to be the head god anyway, you know, but yeah. and so you, you, it's, it's tricky to see, you know, how much of him was darkened up to make him kind of the evil old god. And yeah. it was he, it was a, a brighter figure. Yeah, know? I think he was. Uh, so a, a good example of how he's, where you can really see that he's sort of Satanized yeah. in a sense is in the collection of uh, the Norwegian King sagas, Heimskringla, right. where we have, you know, the beginning, the first story is the saga about, you know, the Norse gods basically being humans migrating into Scandinavia. And he, Odin dies in that story. Yeah. And then he shows up later in the saga of Olaf Tryggvason. He comes around Christmas time, then he hangs out and he sits there and he talks into the king's ear. The bishop starts getting all weirded out by it. And and this is like this is a situation where we have the temptation of heathenry on the, the Christian king who is, you know, enforcing Christianity at this point. Yeah. And uh, Odin is an agent of the devil at this point. So there's definitely uh, a tendency in the medieval period to to turn him into a devil. And we also see this in the old uh, Saxon um, uh, uh, what do you, what do you call these uh, um, uh, baptismal vow, where where it goes? Um, I forsake the devil and Odin, uh, Wotan is called in, in Saxon, mm -hmm. and uh, Thorner, Thor, and then Saxnot, uh, which is a Saxon deity, um, mm -hmm. localized Saxon deity. But yeah, so so you you do have like a tendency to to to. Um, demonize him and there's even a uh a um, case of witchcraft in sweden in the uh, late 1400s i think it's in the 1480s where um where this guy is, is on trial for having um actually uh, done a ritual to odin um uh, in in some capacity like uh, try to 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 contact odin so so Odin is still in in the 1400s, some sort of devil figure, right? So yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of uh, the demonizing of, of him, and he was probably a, a, a little more, a, a, a little brighter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, it's like you'd have to wonder. I mean, especially if you look at the like trajectory of Indo-European gods, and like you know, this this the Sky Father thing is pretty much always there. Mm -hmm. he's, he's definitely a sky father god mm -hmm. it's just he just became darkened up i think a little bit by by i think uh the medieval christians um and and also i think you know just to reiterate that point i think there are a lot of guys out there who think that there's like a a specific way that you do the rituals and it's good to have you on and say like well we don't really know you know i, I mean that's a that's something that yeah. I, I encounter all the time because there's always some dude who's like I know the real, real secret of how they did it. And that's, I'm like, I don't know any scholars who know that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, no, I wish I knew. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, but I have the secret book. Uh, you know, but uh, so we were going to talk about uh, uh, masculinity and, and uh, some of the, the Old Norse traditions and some of the things that you found. You said you uh, had some ideas from the, the Hobmaw. Let's go back to there. 
Yeah, yeah, no. So, and I think this is a good little start because then we get into sort of also the source situation. That means that you know, always take everything that a scholar says with a grain of salt. Basically, you know, we try to navigate a medieval literature that is talking about something that happened, you know, centuries before then. Right. Um, so, but but if we go to like a poem like Halvamal, we I think we get a sense of what it what it means to be a man in in a, in a Viking like quote unquote Viking context. Um, we, we get a sense of uh, the, the types of rules that you would have to follow to be respected in society. Mm-hmm. Um, the first stanzas, uh, the first 80 stanzas of the poem, it's the longest poem that we have, 164 stanzas, I think it is. The first 80 of them are all like these worldly rules. Mm-hmm. Begins with, Don't get too drunk at parties. Exactly. Don't get too drunk at parties. <laughs> Don't talk smack about this guy. All yeah, of these yeah. things, you know, yeah. <laughs> which are really basic sober rules. You know, yeah. don't don't walk into a bar and and start all kinds of balls. That that's right. not a healthy thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You might want to, but it's not healthy. <laughs> right, right. right. Um, and uh, and that's where I, I think we see some some really interesting um, um, ideas because. The temperance is is a is a key component. Like you can be the meanest badass that you want to be, but you always have to contain it to some extent. Mm-hmm. Is actually what Odin is telling us. Um, this is also what we see in the saga literature. Um, we know revenge and honor are important um, codes for the people in the saga literature, and hence also in medieval Iceland and 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 before in the Viking Age in Iceland. Um, but what do they do? They don't always just go out there and then kill uh, whomever has uh, uh, impinged on their honor. They sit down and, and wait for six months, and then it might come, or they wait for even longer. Um, the transgression has happened, and nobody forgets the transgression, but they're not quick to act on it. And I think that says a lot about um, how they think about this uh, the ideal of masculinity. Mm-hmm. You you are a defender, you are powerful, but you're the, the, that blind aggression, right? These rash acts of aggression, they're they're not particularly well respected by by this culture. So that's that's one of the first things that uh, I see when I'm reading this literature. And masculinity is is also about um, containing whatever aggression that you have. So some, some sort of middle way, right? So it's just not wild passion where you're just a, you know, like bloodlust and just no. foolishness because that's just going to get you into more trouble and create all kinds of trouble for everybody. But it's, you know, it's calculated. Yes. And I think, you know, a, a good example of, uh, we talked a little bit about him um, uh, before um, we, we started um, recording, um, Sigurd the Dragon Slayer, right? Sigurd the Fafnis Bond. He uh, is actually an example of of the bloodlust a little bit. Mm-hmm. We, we we have that in the, in the in sort of his family line because that's and, what he, he doesn't save people. He's an avenger. He, yes. he, he, he avenges his father. <laughs> he, that's what makes him different from all the other heroes, like Beowulf or whatever. Like they're, they're all called in to like kill a monster. Yes. he kills a monster, but not for the same reasons. No, no. no. And, yeah. He just he just uh, follows. Uh, blind vengeance. 
Um, I think that's actually, that is, that is the whole point of the story, uh, that, that blind vengeance is going to take you down eventually. And it might not actually happen to you. It could happen to, you know, your descendants. It, like it, that is something that we also see in the other sagas. And uh, one of the things that uh, uh, I think you can see in the saga of, of Sigurd the Dragon Slayer is that his story links up with Ragnarok. Um, the idea of Ragnarok is that once family turns on family, that's when uh, the world collapses. Mm. And that is also what happens in his story. We are basically, um, well, there's, there's the crisis of incest, and then there's also uh, basically fighting within the family. Mm. And that brings you know, that uh, line down. And um, that then tells us that, well, where does all this start? Well, it starts with this, these rash decisions. You're not being calculating. Mm -hmm. And so you should, that, that would be a, an important warrior ethos or leader ethos to be uh, calculating and temperate. And if you also see this in, in multiple examples of the stances in, in, in Halvamal, where we're basically saying, um, be, don't be, too stupid, don't be too wise, be middle wise, right? <laughs> yes, yes, there's a lot of that, yeah, yeah. Always try to keep the balance, right? Whatever that balance might be, right? right. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't get as educated as you can, but it means that once you've gotten this educated, don't, don't, don't be too cocky about it. Right. Just keep the balance always, right? And in the same way, if you don't know enough about a subject, don't be too cocky about that either. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. but, but yeah, so let me just, um, I, I, it, there's a couple of um, uh, stories that, uh, or a couple of stances that I think are really important actually to, to this, um, uh, the, the notion of what makes a man in, mm -hmm. in Halvamal. We have stance 50 and I'm uh, using Andy Orchard's uh, translation and it's not the best one out there, but um, it's better than um, me translating from the uh, Old Norse. Um, so stanza 50 goes, uh, the fir tree fades, the stance in the grove, its bark and needles give no shelter. So it is uh, for a man whom nobody loves. How shall he live for long? Now, the problem with this translation is that it actually it should not be in the grove, but on a hill without any protection, right? So this fir tree that stands and grows on, on a small hillock or, or some kind of uh, promontory that has nothing around it withers, um, gets um, uh, beaten by the uh, weather um, in so many different ways, right? And that's, of course, a euphemism for a person without a family, a man without a family, a man who's loved by no one. So that's an important component to be loved by, mm -hmm. by people, have your people around you, right? Yeah, yeah, no, and that's, that's a, like, uh, you know, there's a very American idea of being like this kind of, uh, uh, Every man is an island, kind of thing, uh, you yeah. know, kind of a Clint Eastwood thing, uh, and that's just not uh, realistic or or healthy. No, it's definitely neither realistic nor healthy. Um, and yeah, no, they, these people had a very different perspective on that. You, you are basically what your family makes you. Right. That's 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 how the uh, uh, the Vikings would have seen this. If we go to my favorite hero, Eir Skaflagrims, and it's the same situation. Um, in the poem Sonatorek, where he laments the loss of his son. His son has drowned. 
and he is he creates this uh, beautiful skaldic poem about it and um he even curses the gods in it actually um which says a lot about the you know human relationship to gods too that you can do that <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is that definitely that he talks about how the family uh, is sort of a, a fence that stands around a field. So each person is a post in that fence. Mm-hmm. Now, the infield here, um, this is what is popularly known as Inangars. In the, uh, it's, this is taken from the Icelandic uh, law material. Right. Um, and this, this is a very... It is both in a legal sense and also in a sort of a broader conceptual mythological sense, a holy space. Mm-hmm. And um, in in context of a family, that infield is the honor, right? So that means that when somebody attacks a person in the family, then they then they are, could be making a hole into what's the honor, if that makes sense. Yes. Right? And this is what uh, A, it's actually addresses in the poem. He says, um, uh, the, the sea has made a hole in the fence, in the post where my son used to stand, right? Mm. So, so there he talks about this, um, the family as that fence that guards that inner sanctum. And um, that is, of course, that, that I think is, is the most important aspect of what makes both a man and a human in uh, the Norse mentality, so to speak. And um, so that means then that if you are a Viking, if you are a Scandinavian in the 800s, if you are a heathen uh, person in in Northern Europe in in the 800s, your way of life is centered around that family and guarding that that center space, that Mm -hmm. sanctum. And you don't really have much of an individual um, existence outside of that. That's really important to consider. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from the Lone Ranger uh, sort of perspective. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, 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 I mean, people used to be very, that's, that's one of the things that makes the modern world very crazy is that uh, uh, people used to be very contained. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like your family, your you know, a small community, whatever. These are the people, this is your whole world, really. And uh, the modern world, because, you know, we hear news about things that are happening in places that we'll never go to and to people that we will never meet. Yeah. And uh, it makes people crazy because they have they have drama that's not even their drama. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like they're, they're having drama, they're, they're having anger and drama about things that aren't happening to them. Yes. Uh, and uh, but But yeah, it's like... Uh, you know, the a family, and I write about this kind of stuff a little bit too, uh, as far as like that, that perimeter and that circle, that's where your culture is. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that you have to protect uh, because that's your whole identity and worldview. Yes. In there, that, 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 that central fire of that, that that's, that's your whole identity. And that's yeah. what you're, yeah. So interesting. Yeah, no, and that's, yeah, it uh, goes for any kind of relationship that, you know, a group, a group forms, right? So uh, a family is, of course, a, 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 the, the naturally occurring relationship, right? Um, because people descend from one another and, and come together to create descendants. Um, and then you have the culturally created communities and groups, right? 
whether they are um, you know based off of uh, nation or they're based off of city or they're based off of uh, region you know that there are so many different reasons that that people form these communities it could also be for military purposes hunting purposes and so on right mm -hmm. and all of these groups will in different ways have you know a center that everybody who buys into the group and its concept um, will be compelled to defend in one way or another right exactly exactly yeah. so I, I just this is basic but uh, just because it's, it bugs me uh, can you tell people what you what you mean when you say Viking yeah no <laughs> yes. So uh, okay, so so, and I'm guilty right now of uh, of using Viking in the sort of like the popular sense of like uh, Scandinavia before uh, people were converted to Christianity and and all that stuff. But uh, in in the the very strict sense of what a Viking is, we're dealing right. with a person uh, uh, who goes on either a trading or military expedition in the period from say like late 700s to late thousands. Uh, that's yeah. what a what a real Viking is, so to speak. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, to, I, had to, I had to get that in there because there's so many people that they'll like write me or they're like, you're like, ah, 23 and me says I'm Scandinavian. I'm a Viking. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> no, no, that's not how it works, my friend. That's not what it is. Uh, and I like, or, or even like, you know, it's easy to explain to people, even like we talk about heathenry or, or whatever. Uh, it's easier to say, you know, kind of like the Vikings. It, it's easier yeah. to say that because it's quick and it's a shorthand. But you know anyone who says that their their religion is being a Viking, then I hope that you're slaying all kinds of motherfuckers. Because, <laughs> yeah, be out there on like, a boat. I, I know some guys who can probably claim that pretty legitimately, but uh, they aren't usually the guys online saying that they're Vikings. You know, like uh, no, yeah, that, that's a big difference here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, that's a, it's a job basically. Yeah. Like, it's a role in the world, not like a you know just because you're a heathen and you like you know worship these particular gods or whatever that's not what a viking is so no. i just had to, I had to get that out there because people need to be educated on that yeah <laughs> no i agree and that's that's a really important that you say this because we actually have a very uh, the, the, the definition of viking is is not something that can be disputed because we have multiple written evidence from the viking age about what they thought a viking was this right. this is on the runestones and so it is very clear that a Viking is somebody who has enlisted on a ship to go with somebody else, uh, either to Russia or the British Isles or the northern European coast and France or somewhere in that area. That's a Viking. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, we, we had talked a little bit uh, before uh, the show. Um, I think just for you and me, let's talk a little bit about uh, where this fits into race because a lot of there's a lot of confusion in that community of people who practice um uh, you know germanic paganism or heathenry or whatever you want to call it asatru or whatever there's a lot of confusion about it being about racial preservation or or something mm -hmm. that, that that isn't that isn't in the lore mm -hmm. as as far as i know so what's, what's your perspective on some of that and because i know you said you work with some groups or whatever that are kind of not you know ag against that particular yeah. interpretation yeah. of material. Yeah, so I mean, I, I want to tell anybody who's uh, who's watching uh, that, um, you know, personally, I'm, uh, I'm anti-racist. I, I don't believe in the, the concept of race in and of itself. Um, but aside from that, 
the situation is uh, that, well, these, these people um, in the medieval period didn't really have a good uh, a sense of, of races. We do see, you know, black people being mentioned in medieval literature from Iceland. They did know that there were people out there with darker skin. Yeah. Um, and they also, to some extent, uh, probably interacted with some um, in different ways. And this would be rare occasions, uh, probably, because we we have a little bit of piracy that coming coming from North Africa, and of course, Europeans also going down and you know uh, trading in the Mediterranean and so on. So there would be some interaction, and some few individuals in uh, Scandinavian Iceland would have knowledge of of the existence of people with other skin colors. Um, aside from that, it also looks like we we do have, of course, some interaction between the Mediterranean and and, and Northern Europe in uh, throughout the period that we could call the Germanic period from the year zero and and onwards. Um, you know, Isis was uh, a, a goddess that was had temples in in Germany. You know, in the Roman period, <laughs> so there was interaction. You know, in different ways, right? Absolutely, yeah. And Roman legionnaires who would come up and who would probably also have darker skin tones. So, so, so it, there was interaction in different ways, and there's no indications at any point that that these Germanic peoples were particularly you know, busy uh, preserving their whiteness. To be honest, right? But which is we don't, which is an Americanism, really. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> Even even in the colonial periods, um, you know, in the 1700s and 1800s, uh, the uh, when when people who were otherwise slaves in the colonies would come to uh, to Europe, um, they would quite often find a place in society. They wouldn't be ostracized. That's something to keep in mind too. Like historically, the Europeans uh, haven't uh, until the 19th century been particularly focused on you know racial division. And segregation that comes later in, in in society, and so if we go back to the Viking Age, it seems to me also based on genetic evidence that the, these Vikings weren't particularly busy um, preserving their uh, particular um, white features. That's, yeah, that, I mean, I, I mean, uh, like as we joked earlier, like I mean, uh, they're sailors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. they're, sailors. <laughs> they're sailors. They're going around to different ports and and. Uh, and do whatever they want to do. I mean, uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, obviously evidence for that and, and so forth. And, and it, there's just this idea that it's all about preservation. Now, it is interesting to think about, uh, I mean, the one legitimate thing I think that people have is obviously like, there's some connection if you're from that area, you know, or your ancestors are from that area or whatever, there is some connection to that because it's part of your heritage. Mm-hmm. A little bit, but I think people overplay that because there's a lot of other part of it. They, they're like cherry picking their heritage to a certain extent. Like, like my heritage, yeah. by my ancestors. <laughs> oh, by your ancestors, you mean this pe- people in this spot in history, in this place, and yes. not the ones that came after or the ones that came before. No, exactly right. I and mean, you know, I, I think you know the average of, of, of white American is a mix of a lot of different European ethnicities. And this is one of the things that, I, you know, sometimes we'll point out to Americans too, that, you know, it, over in Europe, the way that we relate to this kind of stuff is that, um, you know, if you have a Italian mother, right? Yeah. A Danish father, then you're half Danish, right? 
yeah. uh, because we are very entrenched in, in, in like national conceptions of what it yeah. means to be this ethnicity versus that ethnicity. I mean, if you're Swedish and Danish, then you're half Danish too, right? <laughs> or half Swedish even, right? We yeah. have distinctions between Danes and Swedes. Yeah, that's not something that you see that much over here. Over here, this sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, if you have Norwegian, Swedish, Danish ancestry, then that's just Scandinavian, right? And and that's that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there's all um, kinds of there's all kinds of different things, and you know, if, if America was allowed to like uh, evolve in the way that it probably should have, uh, I think that you'd have that, and you have it a little bit. You know, there, there, there's, there are maps of like distinct nations in America of like different people, you know, who, mm -hmm. I mean, like I've been to the South and I have lots of Southern reasons, but I am not Southern. <laughs> like, right. uh, like I, I don't belong there. <laughs> I'm not yes. Southern. There is something different about being Southern than yes. it is about being other place. I mean, I'm from Pennsylvania originally. I'm a, I'm yeah. a Yankee. And it's, I'll never be Southern, <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, I think that you, it, on a long enough timeline, American probably would have evolved in that same way. I mean, Texas is kind of its own thing too. You know, like mm -hmm. Texas is Texas. You know, yeah. if you're from Texas, then that's they have like national pride, you yeah. know, for, for their their area. And I and think, like, yeah, go ahead. The same here in Colorado. There's a, there's a big difference between being in the mountains in Colorado and being down on the plains. You know, there's a big difference between being you know in Denver as a city and uh, you know being a hillbilly like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, same, same, same thing. Actually, people think Oregon, uh, I'm out in Oregon right now. And I've lived in Oregon for like 15 years, so I'm pretty Oregonian at this mm -hmm. point. Uh, but, uh, you know, I lived on the wet side uh, for half the, for most of the time that I've been out here. And now I'm out on the dry side. And there's, there's a difference between people who are on the wet side and the dry side. Yeah. You know, people always think of Oregon, they think of this place that rains all the time and looks like Middle Earth. And it, there is that, there, there's yeah. that, but half the state. And same with Washington. Half the state is like kind of high desert plain. Yeah. You know, and exactly. so like it's a different, it's a different vibe, it's a different group of people, uh, you know, different politics, all kinds of different things. So it's it's a different uh different place. You know, people are always like, Well, you're from Portland. I'm like, Well, I'm not, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you know, this is really important because I think it, if anything, the thing that makes you know a people a people. Mm -hmm. um is it's the place you know, if if you have a group that uh sort of grows up with a place mm -hmm. right over and i'm talking over generations uh, centuries um that that makes a major difference um some of the like, cultural distinctive aspects of being scandinavian for instance are um the the, the all the coast you know this after I moved to Colorado, it was the first time I was not near coast right. in my life. Yeah. And I've lived in Denmark, I've lived in Iceland, I've lived in Greenland. I was always by the coast. So that's, that's, that's just a, a very important aspect of being Scandinavian. This is something that uh, I've always identified a lot with, like sailing uh, as a Scandinavian. So, so that says something about what, what makes a, a Scandinavian. You can see this also throughout the literature. Like we even, you know, the mythology even has a argument about whether or not you prefer the mountains or the coast right in uh, the sea god Mjöder and his wife the mountain goddess Skadi mm -hmm. and that um, that has that was even so important that the Danish historian Saxo used it in his uh, history of the uh, the Danes where um, he 
puts those words in a context of the Danish king um, fighting with his uh, queen over whether they prefer the ocean or or the mountains. So that's that's an age-old debate and part of like the cultural narrative of being Scandinavian, mm. basically. Yeah, there's definitely. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard that with other people just generally too. I mean, it's like if you're, you're a mountain person or you're a beach person. I mean, they're not usually the same person. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a different vibe. Uh, it just kind of uh, dawned on me, what is your perspective uh, on the Vanier? So my perspective is largely that they never existed. Okay. All right, let's go. <laughs> Let, let's rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. I think, you know, most people who, are, who know Norse mythology here in North America are familiar with Woody Simic, uh, Rudolf Simic, who... Uh, who yes, okay, yeah. His, yeah, his dictionary in Northern mythology is, is the, the, one of the most popular books that I've noticed, at least here in, in North America. He's, he wrote an article back in 2004, I think it was, where... Oh where he basically, uh, I think he titled it uh, the Vanya and obituary. He made a really a compelling uh, argument for the Vanya actually never having existed. And yes, <laughs> it's, uh, it's um, now it's, it's a long time ago since I read it. So, so I, I don't really remember the arguments that well, but it stuck with me, this idea that there, you know, the, the, the few instances where they're mentioned in the oldest sources, like for instance, the poem Verluspa, Mm-hmm. they don't really seem that distinctive. And the word van could actually just be another word for the icy. Okay. So, so that's, that's a possibility, at least. That would then uh, make us ask, well, what is up with that war, that first war that happens in Berlusbaum? Right. I would attribute that to the war between the gods as one collective and the Jötnar, which we mm-hmm. you know, typically translate to giants. Right. Um, because you know what, if we look at it sort of like in an Indo-European perspective, this division where you have both, like you have two families of gods and also the primary, um, wardens of chaos or however you want to define these Yotna, right? That doesn't seem to add up in the, the general schemes. Like we, 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 we usually have a protagonist and an antagonist group. Mm-hmm. We don't have an antagonist group and then a protagonist group and then a we're not really short group. Right. If you know what I mean? <laughs> like they, they, they usually function on, on a simpler sort of scheme, um, which means then that if, if, that's, if that is the case, that, that, that these Vanya uh, are a creation that comes in later, mm-hmm. the primary uh, source for their, uh, the genesis, so to speak, in Norse mythology is actually um, aforementioned beginning of uh, the collection of the Norwegian kings sagas. Right, right. Where we have Inglinger saga that tells us about Odin lives over here in Asia. Yeah. Ausaland. <laughs> and then he migrates uh, with his Aesir. And this is a very common medieval uh, way of doing etymology, right? You have um, a word that sounds uh, like another word. That's got to be the same word, basically. Right. Asia, Aesir, right? That's what they do, basically, we lump them together. Right. So that, that's, what the, that's what it means to them, that the Aesir, they actually migrated out of Asia, uh-huh. uh, come to this land, uh, Vanaland, 
the, uh, of Anaheimer that, that is situated by Tanakis. Um, and this, this is really important when it comes to this etymology of the uh, medieval period. Um, so you can basically commute the first um, uh, letter in a, in a word to, with another letter, and then it's the same word. Okay. That, that's, <laughs> yeah, so the, um, you know, science worked a little differently back then, <laughs> but that's legitimate here. So, yeah. so the, the writer of this saga goes, well, there's this river in Russia called Tanais. Now, we, in old times, we used to call it Tanakrisi, and that's the same as Vanakrisi. So that's why Vanahema is right there right. by that river. So on, on the border to Europe is this people called the Vanir. Mm -hmm. That's really where they're invented in sort of like in the literature. And that is to uh, ultimately to actually uh, divert paganism out of the royal line of the Inglingar. Okay. That's the that's the whole point of all of this. It's very convoluted, but this is a typical uh, sort of medieval way of treating history. You know, making these different uh, um, sort of like circumscribing, uh, uh, basically circumscribing various aspects, so that you avoid talking about the, uh, the subject directly, right. but also write it out of history. And what they managed to do, if you go to uh, chapter ten and eleven, I think it is. Mm -hmm is that Freya, so one of the Vanya, mm -hmm. does not belong to the Asia. She is the one who becomes responsible for uh, the pagan rituals mm -hmm. in this story. Whereas Freyr is the one who becomes responsible for the creating of the crown goods that belong to Uppsala and the Inglinga dynasty. Mm -hmm. And then he also becomes, you know, the progenitor of the Inglinger. So right. in that sense, she goes, I don't know, into the mountains and, and practices paganism as some kind of witch. Right. And she becomes a king. And then we have like this little lacuna of 130 years or something like that. And then we're all Christian and everything's great. That's how that works. <laughs> <laughs> and that witch is still up on the mountains practicing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's really interesting. Now, it, it, it's it's a figure that's hard to get. That's why I'm glad I asked. That it's a figure that's hard to get a handle on, uh, uh, um because it, there is a third function. You know, like the Dumasil's tripartite system. Like they, he's kind of the third function, and so he makes sense. But yeah, there's definitely something weird going on in, in the mythology that that yeah. doesn't really fit in there. But in the in the bigger picture of like men and society and whatever, he's the kind of the fertility pan. You know that that kind of thing in in the in the in the, in the Eddas that's mm -hmm. more that that role. But like you're saying in the in the alternate telling in the England saga, they're they're you know which is more euhemeristic. Mm -hmm. It's he's more of a he's just a one in the line of kings. You know after Odin or whatever he did, he's one of the priests, right? Didn't he have like twelve priests? It's it's pretty rad actually. Like Odin's like yeah. a warrior that has magic powers and like and he's like handsome and ugly at the same time. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty cool. It's a totally different look at him. You know, like from uh, the other uh, the other material. Absolutely, yeah. No, in Inglinga Saga, uh, personally, I just think there's a, there's a little bit of inspiration from uh, Muhammad actually mm -hmm. and his Muslim warriors. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and which has been sort of at the time 
um, re- it has been regenerated with the loss of Jerusalem, right? That happens in what, the 1180s, as far as I remember, the 90s, can't remember exactly, but late eight, uh, 1100s, right? We have Saladin who, you know, ousts the Crusaders. That leaves an impression on the, um, uh, the, the European uh, Christian community. Hmm. And so when this author of England and Saga, some would say that it's Snorri Sturluson, I'm not entirely sure about this, mm-hmm. um, but um, it, it is somebody who's very familiar with Norse mythology at least. So when he's sitting there in, 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 in the 1230s in Iceland, writing this down, there might be a little bit of like this memory of what happened with the Crusader Kingdom. Mm. And um, with the um, uh, with the way that Muslims are perceived in the European uh, um, consciousness, so um, I think some of that is actually transposed upon uh, Odin here. It's the same kind of like uh, warrior religion, with like this leader that uh, leads his uh, his armies into Europe. Um, and you know they they believe in him in the same way. Sort of, like you can pray to him. You he will save you at sea. He will save you in war. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things. There's something there that where there might actually be some inspiration from narratives about uh, Muslim uh, warriors too. That's my personal theory on this uh, issue. I haven't actually seen it uh, discussed much uh, anywhere else, but I think there's something going on here because that's part of you know history writing in general when, uh, in this period of time when, uh, when it comes to Asia. And Asia is defined by the presence of Muslims in the 1200s for Europeans. So, um, so that's, a, that's a possibility. And that, of course, then also means that you know, the person who's writing about Odin in Inga Saga is probably not particularly thrilled about Odin in Inga Saga. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what happens? Well, he dies. Right? Yeah. But this is uh, really interesting. So uh, um, chapter 11 of Inga Saga, Odin dies, then the other takes over, the other dies. And that's how we then get to Freya and Freya. Right. But if we go, go back to the whole aspect of masculinity, yeah. Freya as a deity and also as a deity associated with uh, kingship um, would, I assume, would be a, a you know, the epitome of, 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 of masculinity. I mean, he would be a god that you would assume to have all the tra- desirable traits of, of a masculine man. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, yeah, because it's like, the, you know, I think in modern paganism and heathenry, he kind of becomes this kind of a hippie, uh, this, you know, the hippie, uh, whatever, Wicca god. And, uh, and, and, you know, his name means Lord, right? Yeah. I mean, his name, it means Lord. And so, you know, I, I always kind of frame him a little bit more as a Lord of this world in, mm-hmm. in that way, like, you know, like, it takes care of, you know, we're, we're on earth and uh, we have to interact with the plants and trees and whatever, we have to do all that and manage it. Uh, and he's, you know, he's also associated with wealth and, and that kind of thing. So I, the material world, I kind of associate it more with the material world rather than the high-minded like creation level thing that Odin does. Uh, he's a little more Lord of material world. That's kind of yes. how I, I, I think of him. Yes, he definitely is. He's a, he's some, uh, he's, he's a material, 
uh, a god in that sense. He uh, he's he's focused on the land, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we see in the poem Skirnismal, um, where Freyr desires the goddess Gerder, mm-hmm. and he wants he, he he becomes lovesick after her, right? He wants right. her, um, and um, uh, well, this is an interesting story because first you know, he sends Skirnir, his his servant, and then first Skirnir tries to um, bribe her. That doesn't work. Right. Then he threatens the life of her uh, father uh, and brother, I believe. Also, I'm going on memory right now, mm-hmm. and that is also you know, a pretty pretty considerable threat, especially considering what we just talked about when it comes to like family, you know, right, right, and family loyalty. Uh, and then after that, then he threatens her fertility. Okay. He, he's, he, he, he uh, directs this magic spell against her. Um, he um, tells her you will, you will lose the favor of all the gods. You will live in hell. And I think actually with a three-headed giant um, and drink nothing but goat piss. <laughs> like it's very specific <laughs> right. and that's when she goes okay okay well i guess i'm gonna have to like go hang out with Freya. right because i don't want to go no, 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 no. like who was the line <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah who yeah. was that yeah <laughs> no and um and so, uh, so what happens there is that um, we go from uh, from this situation where the god desires this goddess who definitely represents the land. Gerder means this um, field, infield, basically. And um, he tries different solutions, and then ends up with this um, incantation, this this fertility incantation, and that's what works. And this is, of course a euphemism for the um, fertility power, if you ask me, the the fertility power of this god, this worldly material god Mm -hmm. that uh, that, um, brings his fertility to the fields, to the lands that are ruled by uh, the kings. Um, the two main sort of like interpretations of this, uh, this, uh, this myth are definitely uh, the, the, the one that interprets it as a uh, fertility myth and the one that interprets it uh, as a uh, myth for a sacred kingship. Mm. And I think both of them actually work together. Interesting. Uh, yes. So, um, so um, sacred kingship is the concept of uh, a king who's uh, descended from the gods. Um, which um, I think we can safely say was present in Scandinavia mm-hmm. in, in pre-Christian times, um, especially towards the end. I, I think they got a little inspired by, you know, what they saw over in England and, you know, in France and elsewhere. And, and we see it sort of like, a, it looks like a consolidation of power throughout the, the Viking era mm-hmm. from like the beginning of the 700s and onwards. It starts actually in the 500s, but you know, it really um, gains momentum once these kings, they managed to create a lot of wealth from their raids in the British Isles and, you know, the, the trade that goes through the, the Baltic. And that's how we get these, you know, sacred kings that, yeah, um, probably function more as dictators than anything else. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's very Indo-European anyway. You know, the idea that the king, kings and heroes all have divine 
you know, they, they're, they're all connected to the divine uh, in some way, you know, like all the, mm -hmm. all the heroes, that's kind of one of the, one of the standard things about hero myths is that they're, they're usually orphaned in some way. So they can kind of have this like secret backstory, yeah. uh, you know, where they, where that's where the divine line came in or, or where my, my favorite one from the Greek is, is, is where, uh, Zeus came upon her in a shower of gold. <laughs> and, but, uh, and that's my favorite one because just because it's crazy. <laughs> like, but uh, it's uh, you know, but uh, you know, like you know, where that the divine lineage comes in, and uh, you know, I mean, uh, so many. Where do you think uh, the sacred, the concept of sacred order, fits in? Um, because obviously that's a really big thing in the Vedic uh, stuff. I mean, the Arta, and then it becomes then it becomes uh, in, in the the Greek, and and uh, they all had an idea that uh, you know, like hierarchy. Even uh, I put out recently, you know, is in order that comes from the gods linguistically. Like it's it kind of higher. It's this uh, mm -hmm. a sacred yeah, concept of sacred order. I mean, what do you think the sacred concept of sacred order is in the context of uh, uh, the northern? Uh, lore. Well, so I mean, as a, the way that I and um, this might not sit well with a lot of people, but the way that I actually perceive the sort of the Germanic culture is an outlier mm -hmm. uh, from from the Mediterranean cultures more than than sort of like its own thing. And I know a lot of people want to see it as as sort of like its its own uh, very distinct um, uh, culture. But I see it more as a as as a a culture that develops very closely in connection with the Mediterranean cultures and also what comes from in from Russia and in many ways also in relationship to the Finnish and Sami peoples uh, living to the north. Um, the, in that sense, to me, there's nothing special about the Germanics. <laughs> right. I mean, it's all connected. All those people were trading like for thousands. Exactly. Of years, you know, like <laughs> yes. the idea that it's just isolated is is wrong. You know. Yes. Yes. And um, and so yeah, in that sense, you can see it as a sort of like a this localized uh, expression of a continuum, a cultural continuum. And it, you know, it seems like to me. Uh, Again, our source situation is so problematic compared to, for instance, the Greek, right? right. Um, if we had just something like the Greek literature available, that would be awesome, but we don't. Um, but it very much looks like the same basic concept. We, we, we have the same hierarchical order. Um, one thing we should, of course, remember is that all of these cultures, including the Greek and the Romans and so on, they also have the councils, right? Um, the, the Roman Senate is very much the formalized version of that, but we see that with the Germanic cultures too. They have they have at least a warrior council, but um, it could also be more than a warrior council, depending on on whatever uh, cultural context we're in. Iceland is, of course, in a Nordic context, a well-known example. They don't have any kings; all they have is the parliaments, the general assembly, and that is. You know, the Icelanders tout that as a democracy, an early democracy, but... Uh, <laughs> things not kings, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's an oligarchy, if anything. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you know, in, um, in Norway, that's where the inspiration from the Icelandic General Assembly definitely comes from. We have Gula thing and uh, Frosta thing, uh, the two main assemblies there. 
Denmark, uh, my home country, has uh, these assemblies all the way until uh, 1665, I think it is. Mm-hmm. So, so like until absolutism, when the king becomes absolute. <laughs> right. So that's that's a that's a pretty uh, pretty long span for for this type of uh, assembly to to exist alongside a a royal institution like that. Um, we don't see that that often, actually. But um, but yeah. So so that something must sort of like be in place to uh, to let people. Uh, there must be a mechanism to let people into these parliaments, right? To give them that uh, deci- uh, the, the power to decide. And if uh, if we go to the the oldest times that we can sort of identify in a Scandinavian context, I would assume that we're dealing with uh, is the warrior hierarchy, where the warriors are the ones who primarily um, are allowed to, 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 to vote at the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, hence this notion of like banging on the shield with your swords to show your support for um, a leader, mm-hmm. possibly a king, right? Um, that's probably something that exists in like in the 200s, mm-hmm. um, 300s. Then what it looks like is that we get a consolidation of power in the different uh, communities in Scandinavia around the 500s. And probably with the rise of, uh, of you know, Odinic cults too. This is where we get all the Bersagir, the Ulfhetna, these warrior clans. Um, they they grow out of a situation where uh, local chieftains they manage to uh, gain more wealth and employ warriors. So we have standing armies to an extent. Of course, we're not talking about you know vast armies, but the concept of the hir, as we know it from Viking Age Scandinavia and medieval Scandinavia, is a standing army. Mm-hmm. Basically, the warriors that sit with the king in the hall. Right, and. And that's that's a that's a steeper hierarchy, I would assume, right? Um, because that's where you have to go through various uh, stages of, of uh, you know being novice, being led into the army, and and um, you know rise in the ranks. And they learn all of this stuff from the Romans. That's very obvious <laughs> that, that these Northern Europeans were learning this from, from the Romans as Germanic peoples go down and become mercenaries in the Roman armies. They bring stuff like this back home. Right. And so, um, so we end up in the 500s. That's where is sort of, uh, I would say, the, the foundation, the basis for, for the mythology and the saga literature, a, a lot of the concepts, the, the pagan concepts, so to speak they come from they come from the 500s from mm-hmm. this culture that is generated there this is also what creates the roots of the viking age the the idea that you can go in um um Leidanger, it's called in scandinavian you can enlist you go on a ship and then you can go fight the english and take their gold and go back home right, right. that's how that works um, and that comes from the 500s, that comes from the central sites that are being built by chieftains, where you have the confluence of, of economy, religion, power in one side. And we have, uh, you know, archaeologists, they don't want to call them temples, but, you know, if you ask me, they certainly are. Okay. Because we have a long haul. We have some kind of cult site 
often a building, or at least in some cases a building, in attachment to this long hall. We have an enclosure. We, we have various kinds of spaces around this place where people make their sacrifices. Um, Tisser in, in Denmark is a great example of this. Hall, lake, um, little sort of building in an enclosure, mm -hmm. what you'd call a hurk or vie uh, in Old Norse. Um, the, I think the, the soil underneath that building shows evidence of blood sacrifices. So, you know, go figure. <laughs> That's a temple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you know, a larger enclosure around all of this complex where you have a smithy, you have a, also a market, that, at least a seasonal market that would happen there. And people have been um, depositing sacrifices in the lake. Um, mm -hmm. The largest gold ring, I think it weighs around four pounds, has been deposited in that lake. The largest gold ring that we found in Scandinavia. So, I mean, that, that's a, that, that indicates, you know, a, a, a very potent space with a very powerful ruler, right? Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like a medieval town in terms of a, a later medieval town in terms of like a cathedral. It, it's, it, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's the way the long haul cathedral. They kind of look the same, uh, in a, in a way. Uh, you know, uh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. What do you think that the purpose of the lake was for? Because because uh, you said that people deposited things in it, but there's nothing really. I don't know if there's much about that in in the lore at all. Or is that do you think that that's just something that we lost? So if we dig a little into some of the things that are like being said here and there in the stanzas in, in, in the lore, uh, we can actually see indications of this. Okay. So archaeologically, what we can see in Scandinavia is that this is one of the most consistent parts of being non-Christian in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. Sacrifice to lakes, sacrifice to bodies of water. And um, uh, that go on raids in uh, England actually take this up again as as like a, 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 a some kind of like cultural memory that is reactivated mm -hmm. uh, in their warfare in England in in the eight hundreds. Um, but yeah, so throughout throughout the the, the pre Christian period, Scandinavians have been sacrificing to the lakes. Um, we have the bog bodies from the uh, uh, you know the, the early Iron Age. We have all kinds of material, uh, gold, weaponry um, being deposited in the Viking Age. We have the, before the, the Iron Age um, and, and so on and so forth. And uh, if we look at the mythology, what we can see is that there are like these uh, instances here and there. Um, in the Ragnarok, right, we have the mentions of these rivers of swords and weaponry. Mm. I mean, there are actual situations where you can find that in Scandinavia, right? Yeah. <laughs> that well, could be... It seems to be around Europe just generally. I mean, because uh, I, th I think the Celts did it as well. Absolutely. Uh, because, I, I mean, I actually visited Optimor uh, Folktai in uh, Germany, which is in mm -hmm. part of Germany, and it's like the whole cult site is all these sacrifices that they probably did for like a thousand years. This This basically little pond i don't want to call it a lake you know mm -hmm. it's, it's a small pond really that that, that uh, they've just found dead horses dead people like just evidence of tons and tons of sacrifices that were done uh, to the water 
that were put yeah. in the water somehow at some point. And this, that water was a sacred body of water for a really long time. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the same in Scandinavia. And you know what? We probably learned it from the Celts. Um, I mean, <laughs> so I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a big silver cauldron that's called the Gunnestrup cauldron um, from, from Denmark. It has plates on the sides with uh, different uh, Celtic gods on it. Mm. And I think it's from around 200 BC. Um, I'm not entirely sure about the year, but, but around that period of time. And so, uh, I mean, that was deposited in the lake too, in, in sort of like a Celtic manner. Mm -hmm. And we even call that period the Celtic Iron Age in Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, 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 this, is, uh, this is again one of these things of like, you know, um, talking about Germanic and Celtic, you know, it might be a stretch. Maybe we're dealing with a common culture here. <laughs> yeah, or just, you know, the constant flux. Uh, yes. Things. It seems like uh, people like separate them very much, but then like, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, the Irish hero, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name because I just learned how to repronounce it the other day because Irish is a whole different thing. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it's a story about the, the, cattle, raid, the cattle raid of Cooley, uh, basically, yeah. where they're, where they're uh, you, know, um, you know, on chariots. <laughs> they're like they're fighting on chariots which is some real pie stuff <laughs> yeah, you know like that's some real old stuff fighting on chariots and, and cattle thieving i yeah. mean that's 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 some old uh old, old old myth and so that's and that ended up you know in ireland you know after all this these people have traveled through europe and all this stuff so yeah, yeah really interesting yeah and uh, you know there's um uh, speaking of celtic connections um mm -hmm. Odin is said to, you know, uh, have this, the head of Mimia, this embalmed head, right? And I, it's not so long ago, I was reading a, um, a, um, an archaeological research paper on um, these uh, uh, embalmed heads that the, the Gauls are said to have had. Like, so the Romans are reporting that the, the people in Gaul, they, they, would, um, they would embalm heads and then they would hang them on their horses or something like that. And uh, um, according to this, uh, this uh, archaeological uh, paper, that, that, that actually did happen. And I'm just thinking, you know what, uh, this warrior god with a, and then rides his horse and has like a, a, an embalmed head with him. Could there be a connection? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, that's and that's just a thing that seems to have happened all over the world. Just as you were saying that, it it jumped into my mind. Uh, I don't know what culture it's from because it's it, it's from uh, I think it might be from the book War Before Civilization, uh, you know, which kind of is one of the book that kind of tears apart the kind of noble savage myth that you know, like mm -hmm. primitive tribes all around the world are actually pretty warlike, uh, and they always were. And, uh, but there's this great little passage in there that's been a joke for me and my friends for years because the, uh, you know, it's probably somewhere in South America or whatever. The guy actually has, keeps the head, beheaded head of one of his enemies and just mocks it and sits around and mock. They're like, a missionary, <laughs> a missionary recorded this, like, like, uh, like, oh, your, your, your wife. She is now in my bed. Your, 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 oh, wow. your, your children—they are food for my mouth. <laughs> like, like it's some savage shit that, like, you know, it's all, all, it was happening all around the world. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess that's just something that happens. I guess if you're a warrior over, you know, warrior culture time, you're like, eh, maybe I'll keep his head and just, you know. 
You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that the people who spend enough time in war, they yeah. get a little more relaxed about death in general. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a way to put it, <laughs> perhaps. No, yeah. we see this, you know, in uh, all over Europe. I mean, the, uh, the different, the, I mean, the, again, go into Gaul, they, they would build towers with people's skulls. Yep. Um, you know the the Scandinavians would do all kinds of weird things with bodies too. It's, this is the yeah, it's, it's pretty standard. I think it's a it's part of. Uh, I mean, uh, humans we 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 are an aggressive ape. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, exactly. And <laughs> that uh, yeah, that that's definitely something that seems to be happening all all over the planet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, people people are more the same than they are uh, different in many ways. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's very true, and um, and yeah, and uh, so um, going going back to the whole uh, thing about the um, the, the different kinds of leaders, I feel like we find in the mythology, right? If we have Odin on the one side, Freyr on the other, we have a a leader figure uh, who is is connected with the numinous, the mysterious, the occult, right? And then we have one who's connected with the material world. And it's, um, there can be different reasons for why we, we seem to see that in the literature. But, um, but one might be the, the, the actual need for different male roles in society. Absolutely. The, basically, for different uh, reasons, different times, different purposes, we need different types of male leaders. Mm -hmm. um, warriors, and sometimes in in uh, in in times of peace, well, we're focused on the fertility aspects because you know that's what creates the society—the right. ability to grow the fields and and all of that stuff. And in times of war, we we bring in this mean bastard from the side right. <laughs> who, who runs around with that <laughs> that bombed head. <laughs> the, the wartime consigliere. Yeah, exactly. You, you need the wartime guy, and and uh, it, it's interesting because uh, I think the you know it falls what you're talking about falls in a little bit with the the Doom and Zeal thing about the, the there's kind of the, the mad king and the just king. Yeah, as well, you know, like you have these two different sides of, of uh, things, and and one of the things that Odin does really well, I think one of the functions that he, he serves really well is as uh, overseeing initiation. Yeah, you know, because that's what when you're dealing with the dead, you, any kind of initiation, you deal with a spiritual death, mm -hmm. and uh, and then you become a new thing on the other side, and so like to have this kind of psychopomp figure. Uh, in the mix there, I mean, that's kind of where the Mad King, Warrior King, you know, that, that's that's where it kind of falls into place there. Absolutely. And yeah, the, that's so interesting to, to look at, you know, both Odin and and Loki then in the mythology, right? Okay. Because they, we have then like these, these characters who uh, mirror each other in different ways um, and, and go out and transgress in, in all kinds of directions and um you, that makes you wonder then um what 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 is the actual role of of a figure like loki in mm -hmm. in norse mythology um we best know him in the christianized sense right in mm -hmm. snorri at the primarily and then of course a couple of uh, instances in the poetry 
um, Lorcasen being the primary poem where he's like the real douchebag. Like that's yeah. that's really what he is right there. Right. Um, but in you know in in Snorri Sturluson's Edda, he he appears in different uh, myths, and in some myths he is that typical trickster figure that gets himself into trouble and then creates a bunch of uh, tools and things that we need, right? right. Um, that would be the story of, uh, of Brock and Sintri, where he uh, he basically makes a wager with the, the dwarfs and he's like, you guys, you can't make all these cool things. And then they're like, yeah, we can. And we want your head if we win. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and, and Odin rules in that story. Um, that's that's very specifically said that you know at the end where all of these tools are being presented to the gods and Loki's head is up, Odin is the ruler who says he's he's the judge. He says, "Well, um, since you guys messed up Thor's hammer, uh, then uh, then we'll only sew his mouth shut." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then I, I, I definitely yeah. see that, that that's definitely one of those. Uh, areas where odin is more of a zeus-like character than exactly than, you know than then uh then this, this shadowy figure who comes in and does does sneaky stuff he's uh definitely more of like the the common judge kind of yeah. the, the father figure you know that yes. basically says like well this is what's right and this is what's wrong and this is what we're going to figure out and you know, yeah. make some rules. And so I, you know, that that it's kind of things like that that make you know made me think about the idea of it being Satanized to a certain extent. You know, he's tend to be he's a he's a just father, really, in a lot of ways. He definitely plays that role too, and um, and that gives him this curious relationship to then the mischievous boy that's Loki, right? Right. right. <laughs> in that whole situation, who seems to get more and more evil, right? You, he goes from from from. Somewhat good, perhaps. Like, in if he is a, one of the three creator gods, there are some theories who suggest that. Um, that um, especially in the context of creating humans, um, Odin, Hania, and uh, Lodur, um, he could be that Lodur figure. We're not entirely sure. If he is, then he's to be perceived as a good god. It would fit with the whole trickster narrative that uh, that he's involved in the creation of humans. Tricksters usually are involved mm -hmm. in some kind of you know genesis of humans or or one of their primary technologies. Like think Prometheus, for instance. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 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 he could have been that figure then, and then he gets progressively more and more evil and problematic, and then he you know turns on everybody later on when Ragnarok comes, right? Yeah. Um, and so he's the antithesis to Odin, right. in that sense, right? They start out at the same, and then they become each other's uh, um, adversaries at the end. And they might even be, I don't know, brothers? <laughs> uh, it's hard to tell. Uh, <laughs> he's definitely a figure of chaos in the, in the, in the lore, you know, yeah. chaotic, you know. But that's that's a weird thing. I mean, myth usually works in some figure of chaos because without the chaos, then you can't have the order. You need, you exactly. need order to balance against chaos. I mean, uh, uh, one a good example is, uh, you know, I mean, Hera is just a total bitch. Uh, and <laughs> like basically, but we get Heracles from Hera because yeah. it, he's, you know, he's her glory because he she gives him all this trouble. 
that and that's that's how he does all of his uh he gets yeah. all of his glory really from from dealing with all the trouble she sends him. Yeah, exactly. He's like, yay. Yeah. <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the trouble. And, and, uh, and so I guess in many ways, like maybe Loki's a little bit uh you know that kind of figure where he's inserted to create trouble, you know, that that because he then you know, without drama, you don't have a story. You know, exactly. Yeah. And it's the same, you know, in in life. Without drama, you don't uh, you don't necessarily, uh, you know, uh, go anywhere, <laughs> right? Like, you know, the, the the in so many ways, problems are are part of you know making humans evolve and and learn and you know become better at things. And um, that's the interesting thing with Loki because, okay, so we have Loki as a mythological character. We also have a Loki-like uh, figure in, in the sagas, in Krokarev's saga. Okay. Uh, Krokarev is this, uh, uh, his, his name means fox. So already there, we in the realm of Tricky. Right. And um, he is a very, uh, he's a very sly figure. He manages to um, uh, build this castle in Greenland, actually. Like, this is the, the story goes wild. Uh, so basically, he escapes to Greenland, and then he, um, he's, uh, he, he gets in trouble there, and he goes into this like, fjord that's like, deep in the inland ice and builds a, a castle uh, that has like, this water system that, uh, uh, you know, it's built of wood, so so he he needs a water system to make sure that he can put out the fires that his adversary is trying to you know burn around him and all that stuff. And then there's also like a ship on wheels that bursts out of it, like very cartoonish actually. <laughs> like it's just like ship on wheels that you know, when he needs to escape, just they burst out of it, uh, the castle and then drive down to the water and then <laughs> get away. Right. So it's like okay. Uh, somebody was definitely, um, you know, <laughs> I don't know if it's <laughs> looking deep in the mead cup or something when they were writing this. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, it, it, at the end of the story, he um, he appears as Odin. Right. He um, he puts on the floppy hat and the the big beard and the, the cloak and everything. I don't know if the floppy hat is part of it, but the cloak and the beard is definitely, you know, the typical Odin uh, figure and appears in front of the Norwegian king and um, it, with sort of a riddle, kind of a scolding riddle. He uh, ends up uh, declaring to the king that he has killed uh, one of the king's men who was trying to rape his uh, his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a just killing. But um, but he, he does this in a very Odinic fashion. So so here we have this figure who's, um, he's a trickster. He's an inventor like Loki is. And then, you know, ultimately turns into an Odin figure uh, and, and does like Odinic things too. Um, and so there is like a crossover between these two uh, figures, the leader and the trickster. Mm. And that's also interesting in terms of like talking about, you know, uh, masculinity, right? Because right. that says something about what these people thought about, well, what, what was the role of a man? And the role of a man could be many different things too, right? The trickster can turn into the leader, 
the leader can also turn into the trickster, the, the mad king, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's that's the the tricky thing about uh, leadership is that uh, you know, there's yeah, I always think of it as is the hero figure is kind of a straight arrow. You know, the hero figure is always kind of a straight arrow, and he he uh, you know has a clear idea of what's right and what's wrong. It tends to be honest, tends to be straightforward, whatever, and uh, very very locked in. And then you have, uh, but kingship is way trickier than that. You know, what you actually have to do to be a leader is uh, it, it demands a little bit more politicking uh, mm -hmm. in any sense. And, and so, uh, uh, actually, a buddy of mine and I were both talking about. I mean, difference between like an, an Achilles and uh, Odysseus. Uh, Odysseus yeah. is known for actually like being a little bit tricky. Yeah. yeah. You know? And uh, I mean, did the whole thing. And so, yeah, I mean, that's those, I think in the king role, there, uh, there, there needs to be, there is a little bit more dealing with conceptual chaos and dealing with the, the, nothing's quite as black and white as the hero believes, but yeah. you still have to have the, the group's interest in mind. Yeah. No, exactly. And that brings me to, to another sort of uh, uh, standard character, right? Thor, right? right. He, is, he is the epitome of, of masculine power and, and, and the figure itself. But he's not very accomplished when you think right. about it. In the myths, he, he gets mad. And that's that. <laughs> like, yeah, he just gets real mad and, and you know, hit, wants to hit somebody with a hammer and, you know, wants to beat up Loki. And, you know, he gets, yeah. it's like, he, he, well, he's, he's thematic. Yeah. He, 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 he's thematic. Like, he's angry about something's unjust and he wants to fix it. And so, like I said, he's very much the straight arrow uh, kind of warrior figure. But he's yeah. not, the, yeah, he's not, he's not the, at the king level yet. Yeah, absolutely yeah. not. He's uh, he he's the he's the person that can be directed by the king, right? Um, or the leader, or or the general. Like he, but but he does not seem to have much agency himself, actually. Um, and uh, a great example is the story of Utgardavoki, where it makes sense apparently in the end to have Thor become all mad about how he got tricked. And and then wants to beat the giant in his head with the hammer, and then the giant goes like smoke bomb, poof, I'm gone. Right. <laughs> and 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 then Thor is just standing there with his hammer, and that's in so many ways incredibly emasculating too. That means that his, his this raw power he can't use it for anything because if somebody has a trick, then he's just out. He's like, what am I going to do next? Yeah, you know, and you see the same thing happening in the story of like where Thrymer has stolen his hammer, and then he has to dress up as as Freya to right. go get it. Right again, he's like his uh, all that basic like raw masculine power is completely stripped from him. And I think you know these, the fact that there are so many different stories about that, mm -hmm. um, you can still criticize these stories as like Christian inventions, um, right. but some of them actually seem to be older than than Christianity. So, so maybe they're not exactly, and that's the interesting thing, because that then means that these guys are actually telling us that that like, that basic like raw power that where you just want to be aggressive and 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 like uh, lunge at somebody, that doesn't work always. You can't count on that to work. Yeah. Well, you need that guy. 
you need that guy. There's a, there's a place that for that guy. <laughs> there, there is. Yeah. <laughs> definitely need that guy. Uh, but de- definitely, I mean, uh, you know, in the, in the Greek stuff, there's, uh, uh, I think it gets a more mature version when it gets to Rome and they have Mars, but the, you know, the, the Aries is a, a joke in the, in basically in the, uh, uh, in all the lore, in the Homeric uh, stuff, Ares yeah. is like just raw bloodlust, and he get he's he's not tricky enough, and he just he's just like the bloodlust of war. Yeah, you know? like the Spartans <laughs> love him, but the Athenians think he's think he's ridiculous, and he 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 kind of gets kind of made into a joke sometimes in a very Thor like way, and like as you're saying, um, because you know they obviously, as you were saying earlier, they they uh, they value uh, moderation. Yes, a little bit more, yeah. uh, you know, or they're trying to teach people that. Much. I mean, and, and you know, that's that's what you also have to teach a young dude, right? Yes, I mean, like a young dude who's who's at that because that's the way guys are at the, at a certain age. They they know what's right and wrong very clearly, and and they they're very sure about it, and yeah. they're going to get mad and they're going to go do something, and that's you have to tell them some kind of story like, well, you know, sometimes that guy's not always right. And, you know, sometimes that guy gets used. And, and, and you know, so, exactly. I, mean, I mean, obviously these are all stories are around because they're, they're stories that people needed to hear. Exactly. Certain, you know? Yes. No, and that, 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 that is exactly the thing, right? And uh, this brings me back to Halamal because Halamal does have, uh, you know, a couple of uh, comments that go along the, uh, with, you know, that's, you know, um, that guy who's quick to react, right? Right. Um, and first of all, I mean, uh, as as we've talked about already, temperance is, is something that it stresses a lot. Um, better go to bed early than, you know, sit up and drink all night. Right. Um, that's a, that's a smart thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and aside from that, it, it, it is also saying things like, you know, if you want to steal somebody's property, you have to get up early. Like that, that is, that is also part of the, the ethos that is being <laughs> yeah. described here. Um, and which of course then tells us they, um, these people did not necessarily uh, worry too much about whether it was right or wrong to steal. <laughs> um, um, and that probably has its own context, but what it also says. Well, that's. Is, I mean, that's that's what I really like about that. I mean, uh, you know, people when people like I said try to puritanize uh, that. I'm like, well, you're into Vikings, you know, that was their job was to go take. The, <laughs> they're going. Their, their job is to go take some other people's shit. <laughs> that was the plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and 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 also with that plan comes also this, you know. Well, the, this, you you have to first of all have a plan for that, and secondly, you have to be quicker than than the person that you're taking this from, right? Right. So get up early, um, make sure to get there before they've uh, even woken up. Then you can steal their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's something it is telling us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'll just title the podcast that that that'll be our our. <laughs> If you're gonna go steal from people, you need to be up early. That basically, yes. wisdom of the ancient. Get <laughs> you can't be sleeping in if you're gonna go steal some things. No, uh, <laughs> this doesn't work, man. <laughs> cool. What it really ultimately tells us is that you know you have to be calculating, right? You have to be an individual that plans and looks ahead. 
in all kinds of situations. And, that, and it, it, that goes into the menial stuff too, where, you know, Havamal tells us, don't drink beer and then try to cross a mountain. That's right. just not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, 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 not, not, not great. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of like, practical, like everyday guy wisdom in the Havamal. And that's why, you know, I think it's, it's very relatable in that way. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's also, of course, all the, all the, the deep magic stuff. And the interesting thing is that, you know, we have that sort of in the same poem, um, mm-hmm. the history of that poem, uh, the research in that poem is really interesting because scholars have gone in so many different directions. Mm-hmm. Back in the 19th century, all the scholars were pretty convinced that it was six different poems that had been lumped into one. Okay. Um, then there are other uh, suggestions that it's one single poem. And then there's also the suggestion uh, most recently put forth by John McKinnell, um, scholar from England, um, who says that it's three poems in one. Mm-hmm. Uh, regardless of how you want to separate these poems, the interesting thing is that, you know, it all comes as one in the original texts. Right. And so you have these 80 stances of worldly wisdom of like, you know, for instance, you have to get up early if you want to steal people's stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have a sequence about um, um, sexual intrigue Mm -hmm. and uh, um, how men and women think is actually Mm -hmm. what it goes into. And then after that, we get all like this deep magic stuff, like where Odin goes out like, goes full on yeah i can stop an arrow with the blink of my eye and then you know those kinds of things right. it's like pretty impressive yeah. <laughs> i'd like to see that yeah. and um that's really interesting that 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 all of the this comes together in one package because that also tells you a little bit about how the male role was perceived mm-hmm. if you ask me at least mm-hmm. it means that the um the male role is an intellectual one that also goes into the practice of magic mm-hmm. and i don't know uh, if if i if you're familiar with this but i see i feel like i see a lot of uh, modern heathens nowadays especially men trying to want to like disassociate from all that magic stuff that they perhaps see with like witchcraft and wicca and so on it's tricky because of the way, well, A, the word witch is, is you know, it's a weird word because it means something else in that context. And then, but then it's, now it means, now it means a black lady with a black hat on that drives around on a, on a broom. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what it means to everyday people. And so like, I never like to use that word for anything just because, I mean, that's what it is. In America, that's what a witch is. And, yeah. uh, you know, or it's, you know, some chick on Etsy who plays with crystals or whatever. Uh, yeah. But it, it, it's... I definitely think that it's interesting. And I, I go back and forth with this with my buddy uh, because, you know, like I'm always like, oh, divination. I don't know about divination. I'm kind of like, I feel like that's kind of not very masculine. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> you know, other things I can see, but like divination kind of bugs me. But, okay, uh, yeah. you know, and that's, it might just be Americanism or whatever. But uh, I mean, I could see, I could see warriors not wanting to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, but then, you know, you see the ancient Romans and so forth. They they were always looking to signs for birds and things like that to whether they now they should go to war. So yeah. I mean, like, there's a little of both sides. But yeah, I, th- I definitely think the the magic part. You know, it's almost like a, 
I think the best context in, you know, because people always, magic is a tricky thing to talk about because, uh, you know, whether or not, whether you're talking about, you know, like in a Crowleyan sense or, you know, of like, you know, putting your will into some, you know, in a particular direction, or whether you're talking about like a priest that's practicing ritual, which is a different thing, you know, like that's kind of a, that's, you know, you're doing something for a group of people where you're trying to like, you know, you're, you're, you're reciting the myths of your community or, you know, you're making a sacrifice to the gods, all that kind of stuff. That's different than like this kind of like, you know, uh, self-aggrandizing kind of black magic thing. And uh, it's just a tricky subject when you talk about people, because I think that, uh, I don't know, I'm not, I think definitely there has to be a priest role in, you know, that's, you know, like you, you were the, spiritual father of your household in, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of places, you know, like it, that does have to be a part of what men do, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of priesthood role. It, it, the, the magic part is interesting. Cause it's like, well, what is magic? And then it's, you know, what is know, magic? Yeah. It, no, it, it, that's, that's a really, that is actually an incredibly good question. What is magic? <laughs> right. Like, where, where, and, and, you know, the, the, one of the important things to also realize is, uh, you know, our modern sense of what magic means comes from a very, very well-defined Christian context. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, that's also what we see in the saga literature. Actually, it's interesting, you go, divination, I'm not so sure about that. That's one of the things that the Christians um, actually accept with the pagan magic. Interesting. <laughs> Yes, so um, uh, Elfric, um, who is a, a, a medieval um, uh, English um, scholar, um, ecclesiastic um, or clerk, um, I think he was a bishop, I can't remember exactly, but um, Elfric of Ainsome, he, he writes about this, uh, the subject of, of magic and divination, and, and this becomes sort of the standard text for Scandinavia. So the Scandinavians uh, adopt his thinking on this. And that's why in the saga literature, we see um, divination being uh, an accepted form of pagan uh, magic. Mm. Um, so in several instances in the saga literature, one of the settlers who go to Iceland, it's okay that he, uh, first before he goes to Iceland, is actually directed by the gods, which is actually the God, right. <laughs> according to the, to the saga writers, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, by doing divination. So he does some kind of, they call it Ganga um, Freta. So to go and ask, basically. Okay. Um, and that's divination. And that's, that's the accepted kind of, of magic. Now, all the stuff where you manipulate things, on the other hand, where you put your agency out there now. That's the no-no. That's the kind of stuff that Odin is doing in, in Halamal. <laughs> right. I mean, he's doing that. He's doing that kind of stuff. I mean, that, but that's, you know, it kind of falls in line with gods having magic powers as well, because yes. they always do, you know, because that's why they're gods. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing. But then, you know, like, uh, you know, obviously the most famous part of the, the part on magic about, you know, in Halamal is the, the, the nine knights. Uh, thing, which is obviously my, one of my favorite things. I mean, I used to sing it for, you know, in Old Norse for a while. And, and uh, uh, there's so much in there, uh, in that part about, you know, 
you know, whether, you know, kind of putting yourself through a, an ordeal and a sacrifice and uh, to, to find wisdom, you, you know, it's like the whole, it's like a whole Orphic myth or whatever, like all like wrapped, like smacked together in a few lines, you know, like yeah. you have to go through this spiritual death to get something. And it, it's, you know, there's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's a very different kind of magic from the other two kinds that we just talked about. You know, like, exactly. you know, so, I, and that's, that's, I think the most you know, the thing that all men have to do in some point in their lives, you know, yeah. like that kind of, uh, well, in, in an ongoing basis, really, you know, like there's always this kind of self-examination and like, uh, you, know, to, you know, not having something so you can find something better and, and all that kind of stuff. There's, you know, uh, self-sacrifice for, uh, for wisdom. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think also that's that's part of uh, the whole narrative. Again, if we go back to Sigurd the Dragon Slayer, like his lack of self reflection, his mm -hmm. lack of 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 looking into who he is as a as a human being, mm -hmm. is the thing that brings him uh, to you know to his doom. Right. He, um, I mean, he 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 keeps messing up. <laughs> 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 And you know, messing up comes with not asking who am I, right? Hmm. Because if you don't, if you don't explore who you are as a human being, right, right. then 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 you end up in a situation. You can end up in a situation where you have not figured out the blind angles that you have as a human being, and that makes you make these major mistakes, right? Yeah, it you're just acting. React. You're reacting to things. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of. Uh, knowing really what you're about. Yeah. And that's, that's what Thor does, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's interesting because I, I have a buddy who's very much, who thinks that, uh, you know, like Thor was probably the original guy. And then like, cause Odin comes in late. He's kind of a late figure in, in, in some mm. ways, as far as I can tell. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, uh, Thor obviously has a lot of connections in his powers, not necessarily the stories that we have, because we talk about those and that they are what they are. Uh, but uh, it, it, obviously his powers as a sky god, thunder god, you know, then becomes very Zeus-like and, and uh, gets connected. Mm -hmm. Indra is obviously very connected to Indra and it connects all that, you know, the idea of him having a higher role. But, you know, the, the warrior class always, someone from the warrior class has always becomes king, as you were talking about earlier. The warriors stand around and to make the decisions. And uh, that's... Uh, you know, at some point you're elevated from the warrior class, but he's just very much a straight warrior god in the in the lore. But, yeah, and you know, this is really interesting because um, some of the earliest examples of uh, quote unquote Germanic gods mm -hmm. uh, that we have in inscriptions um, from the Rhineland, uh, Frisian area, and the English area uh, during Roman rule um, are actually not that Germanic at all. They're inscriptions dedicated to Mars, mm -hmm. but we can see that it's Germanic worshippers of Mars because one of the inscriptions is uh, Mars Halamardus, which like uh, Halamardus means probably like murderer of men, mm -hmm. and that's a very Germanic word. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one is Mars Thingsus, which means Mars of the General Assembly. Right. So, I mean, those those are two inscriptions made by Germanic peoples. Uh, basically uh, worshipping Mars in uh, different roles, right? One as a war god, like the, that could be, you know, an Odin-type war god, a murderer of men, right? Right, right. And, and the other one uh, as, as the 
sort of the, the presider of the, the, the general assembly. And so that could be sort of like a Seuss role even, you know. Yeah, well, that's like the Mad King, Just King kind of yes. separation. You know, that Mars, we, we all just worship war in different forms, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, so so that that tells us that that was present with these peoples back then. And uh, I think they're from two, three hundreds. I can't remember exactly the, the century. But if that's the case, then, you know, these concepts were already present back then. And... Um, and then, you know, if, if Thor is Mars, well, then your buddy might be right. It could also be Tyr, of course. Right. Really right. They've, they, people have said that, but that like, Dumazilakai goes on that like tangent or whatever, but then there's, there's not really much about Tyr. Like, no, um, yeah, we only really have one story. Um, the story about him losing his hand to the right. Fenrir wolf. Right. Um, which is usually, you know, I guess interpreted as some kind of a, a courage uh, scenario, right? Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I've also sometimes seen interpretations where people are like, well, uh, he got what he deserved, or the gods got what they deserved, because they tried to tie the, the wolf. <laughs> and I, I'm not really sure which which direction to go here <laughs> yeah well i mean that, that, that's that's where uh, we, we, uh, then you get into like thirst of true and like pagan satanism but, uh, but uh, you know. <laughs> i mean that's that's its own well anyway, yeah some people just have to it, it is but on the other hand i mean uh, um we could we could interpret this story if we want to like take it out of its literary context from the medieval Iceland and place it in, say, you know, Germanic Northern Europe in the three, four hundreds, then it could be a story. I mean, we have the, that the golden bratiate that depicts, you know, probably Tyr having his hand bit off by probably a wolf. Right. Um, now, it, then, then we might have a story about, you know, what does war do to leaders? Mm -hmm. If Tyr is Mars Thingsus, right, the, the leader that uh, that, that um, presides over the assembly, mm -hmm. and he then puts himself in a in a, in a negative, problematic situation with war, mm -hmm. um, and he loses his hand, his ability to. Uh, make decisions, and um, you know that could be a down, his downfall, right? I think when we look at this early Germanic period, what we should always do is like look at what what is happening in Rome, because these guys are looking to Rome, right? Um, in so many different ways, and the stories about Caesar are definitely going to have traveled uh, also. Mm -hmm. So maybe some of these stories could also be interpreted in that light, right? Mm -hmm. Caesar, who who becomes the imperator and then never leaves, which he was otherwise supposed to do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that brings him to his downfall, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's also a possibility to put them in that, uh, put tier into that context of actual, like, you know, cultural memory of historical events of various kinds uh, that have a really important lesson in terms of, like, what your role is as a leader right yeah well i mean that's uh i mean that's that's how i've always interpreted uh tier uh just in the, in that sense is like is is connected to oaths and so forth because of that um 
and uh, making oaths binding and, and so forth. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I think as a leader, um, you end up having to make some sacrifices, you know, a, a lot to, to keep, keep order. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, is, is there anything uh, that you have going on right now that you'd like to, to put out there? Are you, what are you working on right now? Oh, I'm working on a lot of things. Um, so uh, I have been working with some uh, uh, friends in um, in Norway. Um, uh, this, uh, this friend of mine has uh, created a um, music act called uh, Nibala uh, that just signed on uh, by Norse, uh, which is uh, the label that um, has enslaved and Wardruna. Okay, yeah. Um, and, uh, he, and so to this... this my friend, he, he contacted me and asked, um, would you be able to like, translate some old, old Norse texts into like proto-Germanic? <laughs> so okay. like, yeah. go goes like deep into uh, this Indo-Germanic, this, this is something you might be interested in, um, sort of uh, the, the deep roots of, of, um, of sexuality actually in, in the, between uh, the, in that continuum between the Germanic and the Indian continuum, basically. Yeah. So yeah, um, there's, yeah, there's, I mean, that's, I actually was using more Proto-Germanic for a long time just because I'm not very Scandinavian, you know, mm -hmm. like, and so when I was, my interaction with this stuff is like, well, all these concepts are actually a little older than that, you know, so I, so all the, like at Valdgang, the, the space that I have made, all, a lot of the stuff is actually in Proto-Germanic. Yeah. Uh, just because yeah. it's, it, it you know, like all these guys want to do, <clears throat> they want to do, uh, you know, heathenry or whatever, but uh, a lot of them are just English, you know, <laughs> you know, like, but when you, when you step it back, they're English or whatever, you know, they're English or German, they're not really Scandinavian, but if you step it back, we all have this common root. Yeah. You know, Germanic cultures come to the same thing and that's part of Germanic. And so I, that was my working thing is why I used that for a while. But, so you're yeah. translating things back into part of Germanic right now? Yes, yes. So I've um, I've made a, a, some translations of of various texts. Uh, um, you know, it's just it's a creative project that has then turned into you know his music, and so, uh, so that, that that's something that I've been working on for a while. He, he's launching uh, his first EP here on uh, August seventh, so um, so look out for that. Um, yeah, lyrics by me. <laughs> lyrics by you. Okay. What's oh, the name of the project again? Nibala, N-E-B-A-L-A, -A. Um, and yeah, it's a, the whole idea is sort of uh, to, to like actually create sort of a, a, a ritual language with, with proto-Germanic, so <laughs> you might be, be interested in that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what we were doing, yeah, for years, we, yeah. That, we, we, we translated a lot of our, because it's cool to have an, a ritual language, you know, it's cool to it have is, yeah. uh, something that's, that really no one speaks, and the cool thing about proto-Germanic is like, who's to say? Like, is your, is your grammar right? I don't know, you know, like, who's gonna know? <laughs> who's gonna know? No one's, we don't know anyone who spoke that language. You know, it's, it's all theoretical. So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, but, it, and that's cool for magical languages because it's, it's, you know, something ancient, but we really don't, there is no, you can't be really super anal about it. Like what's wrong, right and wrong or whatever. But uh, yeah, exactly. no, we have a lot of, like all of our, like my one building is called the, the Wodna Stalas, mm -hmm. um, you know, cause it steps back the word Odin and then it's Stalas, you know, like for the stall or whatever. Uh, but yeah. we, we did a lot of we did a lot of that actually. I've, I've done some proto-Germanic and rituals before, so that, it's yeah, that's that's very interesting. 
Yeah, no, I, I think so too. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm also more interested in that than, um, than sort of like the, the Norse stuff. Because I mean, I'm Danish and uh, that's sort of like that in Denmark and in Northern Germany, that's sort of like the core of, of that yeah. Germanic culture. <laughs> right, 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 it is, it absolutely is. Where the, we have the first runic inscriptions from and everything, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. I weirdly found out I was mostly Swedish. I mean, not not sorry, Swedish, uh, Swiss. Yeah, twenty three me is saying that this year. You know, they change the stuff all the time. But uh, oh, yeah. it, it has me like located in Zurich, like you know, like most likely. Uh, and uh, you know, it's just funny because like yeah, you know, like this that symbol was actually found outside of Zurich, and I picked it before I. Knew oh, that. cool. And uh, yeah. and a lot of the, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of the Persianic stuff is in like the. It's a, a fibula, I believe. Is like <laughs> is one of the oldest inscriptions. That, like uh, Wikitonar is on that. And yes. I, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, we use that on one of our buildings out at the, the end as well. Nice. But, yeah. Uh, cool. So, so, uh, so you have that uh, musical project, and what, uh, what, else, what else you got going on? Well, I mean, um, I'm, I'm staying here in Colorado. Um, I'm gonna, gonna keep teaching. Um, and um, writing books too. I, uh, I'm working on a, on a couple of books. I recently published a children's book on Norse mythology, um, but um, it's a, it's more of a retelling. As it, like if you're looking for like straight up accuracy, it's it, there's a re, it, it's a retelling. Right, right. <laughs> just just putting that out there for everybody. Uh -huh. You know, making it more uh, uh, kid friendly and right. um, and so on. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm writing a couple of other books. Um, uh, one I can't really talk about it yet, but <laughs> but look out for it. And, uh, I think a lot of the, those who are listening might be interested. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. Just, uh, just keep an eye on your stuff. And like I said, I'll, I'll link to your uh, YouTube channel and uh, and so forth, and cool. uh, so people can follow you on Instagram and YouTube and all that stuff, and, and uh, see what you're up to. Cool, Sounds man. Good. Yeah. All right. Well, th thanks a lot for uh, coming on Start the World. Yeah, thanks for having me here. All right, great conversation.